Welcome to Van Lathan's The Red Pill, where we give you the brutal reality of truth. And we're definitely giving you some truth on this episode because we're sitting down with Immortal Technique, a rapper who is not just a rapper. He is a geopolitical expert. He is also uh, someone who does a lot of extensive work talking to people, educating people, wherever they may be, prisons, schools, uh, out here in society, just trying to make sure we have everything we need to be equipped for the revolution. We're going to talk about the tragic death of XXX and Tassione. We're going to talk about what people don't know about their geopolitical position in this world. And we're also going to talk about America's role in creating the enemies that we have today. This is a deep and highly intellectual conversations. So break out them fucking thesauruses and listen. It's time to pop some pills. Immortal Technique, what's up, bro? How you doing? What's man? up, man? Welcome to the Red Pill. You guys give it up for Immortal Technique. <laughs> Rapper. I like to call him a thought leader as well, though. He's a thought leader because um, obviously, if you listen to his rhymes, he is very uh, socio political. He also talks a lot about geopolitics uh, in his rhymes and the history of things. Now, we're going to get to a lot of subjects, but we'll be remiss not to talk about what just happened. Um, by the time you guys hear this, uh, tomorrow the whole world will, will know, and it'll be have been talked about for a while. But uh, hip-hop community just lost one. XXX Intacion was murdered uh, in South Florida today. He was 20 years old. Um some would say a troubled kid, uh, nonetheless a very, very young creative um, that was out here making his music, Immortal. Uh, before we move on to anything else with the podcast, what are your initial thoughts? Well, first of all, I definitely want to send my condolences out to his family and his peoples. I know they got to be broken. You know, we, we just lost um, a few years ago my, my friend uh, Pumpkinhead, my friend Jay Arch, um, my friend Sean Price, my friend Prodigy. Uh, before we came into the room, I was talking with uh, some of your peoples, and I was explaining to them that what really hurts about this situation is, regardless of how you feel about the kid, sure, he had a, pro a lot of problems. He was, he was troubled. There were accusations against him for abuse and whatever it may be. My grandfather was an alcoholic, and he was a rather abusive alcoholic, maybe not to the degree that my step-grandfather became one, but he definitely was a person who was problematic, who had a lot of demons, but during the later years of his life, he turned it around. You know, he sobered himself up because my father wouldn't allow him to be around me while I was young. Mm -hmm. If he was drunk, he said, no, I'm sorry, you don't get to see your grandson until you sober up. And I saw him go through some life changes. So if my grandfather could do that at 65, 70 years old to change his life, to be, get sober, to, to see a different world, I don't understand how this kid couldn't have done the same thing and now those opportunities are gone and whenever people ask me about young rappers today and they say oh what do you think about this dude or that dude I say for me it's different brother it's very hard for me to criticize these children because when I was 20 years old I was in prison you know mm. what I mean so what the fuck can I tell some kid oh yeah you know you, you should be getting your shit together I didn't have my stuff together you know right. it was the same thing when I talked to any entity when they would ask me about young guys coming up whether it be a chief keep whether someone like this whether it be a 6ix9ine and I say listen dude um, we used to rob people you know we used to run around with guns we used to do really ignorant things and that behavior 
really led to a path of self-destruction. Mm. And I feel like when, you know, when you're, your crew is surrounded by yes-men and there's no one to sit there and pull the reins back, that's why it's good to have old friends that pull the reins on you and say, hey, man, you can't, you can't continue to live like this. I don't know this situation. Yeah, I feel you. I'm going to get into your history and your background and how you overcame and really the remarkable story um, of how you, became to, how you came to be a, a thought leader, as I said a second ago. But I do want to address one more thing about this particular issue, and it's the reaction on social media. Um, we, we put this story up. I, I, I put it out there. Uh, like a lot of people, I don't know. I didn't really know what to make of the kid while he was alive. He was unbelievably talented. But, you know, you would listen to the music and sometimes you would feel a certain way because you didn't know the type of person that you were supporting. And I think that's oftentimes how we feel when we know too much about our artists. But um, I'm always struck at people's need to react right away um, so unbelievably uh insensitively at Callously. something like this. Absolutely. So so I saw right away people saying words that beyond a couple of figures in history I could not ever imagine myself saying, which is, I'm glad he's dead. Why do you think do you think that this is a function of social media and people's need to speak on everything? Or do you feel like in some way, and this is just this is a twenty year old dead kid um, despite the things that he's that, that that he's done or been accused of, am I going too lightly on him? Because you know he was accused of beating up his pregnant girlfriend. It was another situation when he was, I think, locked up in a, in a juvenile detention center where he was accused of having beat up a, a roommate who he said was gay that looked at him in a specific way. It's just when somebody dies, it's hard for me to just be like, yeah, I'm glad they're gone. Is there something like what? What is there something that we're missing? That there are, what's right. going on? I'll I put it to you this way: um, there was a story that broke a while ago about um, myself being a high school bully and the people that I used to terrorize in school and all this. And some of those people that knew me from, you know, bringing a gun to school, being a maniac and running around, they'll never be able to see me as anything but the person I was when I was 17. And I said, you know, I'm really sorry. But I'm not that person, you know. I went to prison. I was humbled by it. And I taught in a prison after that. Um, and I always remind people that when you're an artist that's been incarcerated, especially as a young person, it doesn't give you the right to brag about it. It gives you the responsibility to educate young people. So I went through a period of being humbled and humbling myself because I also belonged to a special group of people that had been to prison that were never slashed up, that were never raped, that were never beaten the fuck down till they were unconscious. I always held my own in there, but I never escaped the humiliation that all of us have experienced. So even the OGs, the triple OGs, the people that are watching this program who can say the same thing about their uncle or their father or some OG that they have in prison and say, oh yeah, he's a stand-up dude. He also belongs to that club of people who ain't never got their face slashed from one side to the other, who's never been violated in the showers, but somebody still screamed at them and told them to take their pants down, to hold up your dick, to turn around and spread your ass cheek, because that's what happens every time you get a visit. That's what happens every time on intake. That's what happens once a month when they do a random search for people. 
Nobody escapes that. No matter how tough you are, no matter how big you are, no matter if you're the big homie from Compton or you're the big homie from Pacoima or you're the you know, Aryan Nation dude from the middle of goddamn nowhere. No, they're going to come for you. They want to know what's in you. They want to know what's about you because you're no longer your own property. So mm -hmm. I think that that pain and that suffering forced me to look at these people in that situation and say, hey, if people can't imagine me being any different, I get it. There's some people out there that never are going to imagine this kid being able to do anything except the negative things he's built up to. And maybe, I told your friend, maybe it's a little Luke Skywalker on me, but I always believe that there's good in everyone. I, I believe that there's redemption. I believe that there's a way back for people. Mm. And it's sad that he'll never have that opportunity. Yeah. And, you it's know, crazy. it's also some other thing you said. We do have that disconnect, so it's easy to make a joke. You know, like when I first saw the story you broke online, literally on my way over here, I, people hit me up, yo, dude was shot. The first comment underneath it was XXX extinguished. And I said to myself, Come on, man. that's childish, yeah. that's juvenile. You don't even understand this. Irrespective of how his own child's mother must feel about him, mm -hmm. it doesn't feel good for anyone knowing that that child will grow up without a father. Mm. That's not positive. You know, even even when people's children have their parents in jail, are those people now expendable human beings? No, they're people who deserve redemption. We haven't given people who are in prison an opportunity for redemption. Right. We've only shown them, you know, uh, a punishment system. We haven't given them the resources to stay out of prison or even to describe what kind of conditioning there would be for a reentry program. Those are few and far between. So tell us, as far as your experience, like you're in prison at 20. You said 20 you were in prison. How long had you been in prison? Oh, I only did a bullet. So I, I, I came out of prison when I was 21. So you did a, a bullet yeah, is a year. year? A year, yeah. Uh, so listen, all of you out there know that Maddie and Jason and some people didn't know what it is. That's, that's, that's a bullet. That means a year. <laughs> okay, get your shit together. Um, two things I want to say before I, I go into your prison time. Like, I know a lot of dudes that were in jail, but I have not yet the, met the guy who was raped. Somebody's getting fucked in there. That's what I'm saying. Mm. Like, I want to meet, if you're listening to this, I'm not saying it was moral technique because look at the look on his face. He's like, <laughs> <laughs> like, he's like, no. he's like come on, man. But if you're listening to this, and you were that guy that got fucked. Hit us up. We want to know how you got on with your life. I mean, here's the problem. Some of those people might not be able to talk to you because they were assaulted by staff. What? Well, there's a big thing. Uh, there's an underreported story in certain prisons, especially women's prison in upstate New York, where they found uh, dozens of you know, fetuses under the prison. And these were forced abortions that the women in the women's prison were forced to have. Uh, and they were buried without any sort of <laughs> substantive Well, attention. I'll tell you what. This podcast has gotten off to an unbelievably cheery start. Like, man, that... that. But that's what I mean. Look, The degradation is unbelievable in there. Here's a, just a brief understanding of it. Up until, like, the, the 70s and, and 60s, the concept of uh, marital rape didn't exist in this country. Sure. Even though we're so civilized, right? So... Up until a certain particular time, maybe 10, 20 years ago, the idea that people in prison could 
have a consensual relationship with someone was just something that wasn't addressed. When in reality, sister, you can't have a consensual relationship with someone who you're a ward of. You know what I mean? Like if I'm the CO, you can't refuse my command. Therefore, any sexual contact between you and me would be totally illegal. And and now that it's that way, it's a different story. For example, I think one of the first examples we see of that in media is Orange is the New Black. They had a, yeah. a thing where- Yeah, yeah that was a, right. in the show, for but, sure. It was but, a big deal. But yeah. maybe 20 years ago, there wasn't a real substantive policy on that because it was an underwritten rule that when you went there, that's what was going to happen. You you sell, you yeah. sacrifice your humanity in that way. Right. As a, as, see, that's the thing. People don't understand. As a woman, you going in there, what do you think is going to happen? You think they're going to not treat you better than a woman? No. When I was, as a man, they're going to do the same thing to you. When you How did it transform your life being in prison? Well, the first day when we went and I got sent up there, uh, I was transferred to a more... Is it okay if I ask you what you were in prison for? Sure. What were you in prison um, for? Well, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I grew up in Harlem, and I resolved a lot of things with physical violence, and that's how I learned to deal with my problems. Uh, later on in life, I took jujitsu, so I became very good at finding the weak spots in human beings. And my master teacher was a brother from Harlem who was a Vietnam veteran, um, and he had a lot of knowledge to teach because... He was a person that didn't just go to war, but came home from one to find America in another culture war, very similar to what we have today, only to a much higher degree, but no social media. So every, all the interactions were personable. All the interactions were people, when they had something racist to say to you, they were gonna say it right to your face. Mm -hmm. And the reaction was gonna be something you were gonna have to contend with as a human being. But those life lessons, I think, were some things that I took and I, I gained from them, but I also became a very violent person because of that. And I said, oh no, I know how to hurt people. So I don't, I don't think I'm gonna take any attitude from anyone. And that was a misuse of my master's teachings. And therefore I would just hurt people if I found that they would, you know. And the beautiful thing about me is that I was a sleeper because I looked like a shorter Latino dude. And mm. someone wouldn't expect me to punch them in the throat and take their leg away from them and then walk home with it. So I think that that was the difference. I got in a lot of really nasty physical altercations. I had uh, three or four cases piled up. Uh, some of them were in New York and some were in Pennsylvania. One where an individual had their orbital socket broken, another one was a broken jaw, another broken nose. And these things piled up eventually. And I remind people, it was also a different era. You know, in my high school, I, I was born in 1978. I graduated from high school in 1996. I'm not one of these rappers ashamed of his age. It shows the fact that I made it this far, mm -hmm. right? But back in the day, in the 90s and 80s, if you got into a fight at school, ain't nobody calling the cops. You dust yourself up and get the fuck on, nigga. What's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> you crying? What you crying for? Ain't nobody, was you a sue the student now? No. <laughs> what are you doing? But this was also the fucked up part about it there's less accountability for kids in that situation now, right? They don't get the full scheme that, you know, when you're a child, you feel like you can run into every room and run back in, right? You can lie to people, lie to your parents, and then you can go back to that relationship. But as an adult, you find out that those rooms that you walk into, they don't go backwards. Yeah. They only go to other rooms. Oh, you're a smoker now. Okay, well, you can't crawl back in the room where you had healthy lungs now. No, you're a smoker. Now you're going to this room with cancer in it. Or you're going to this room where you stop smoking, but you absorb the effects of all the things that have happened because of it. Mm. And I think in that respect, you know, looking at those particular rooms that I walked into, I walked into a room of violence. And the only way to confront it was to recognize that 
the violence was destroying my life. Mm. But I'll give you something else, Van, and this is just a gem for the kids that watch this. I justified this violence because what we practiced in prison was called selective morality. And that means that you and I can be at this table. And everybody watching this shit knows it's true. You and I can sit at this table if you're a murderer and I'm a bank robber or I'm a thief. But there are certain people because of this prison culture that comes from the birth of hip-hop, which is what young people, the new rappers of today, don't have this code. It's a code that exists among people who grew up in the 70s, 80s, 90s, even some of the 2000s. The people that cannot sit at this table are rapists Pedophile. and child molesters, pedophiles. I'm sorry. That is the selective morality we practice. So if somebody shot somebody or stabbed somebody or killed somebody, sure, we can sit down and have a conversation with you. But the reality is that there's so many times in which kids have been abused, and that's what they remember. That's what led them down this path. Mm -hmm. So therefore, they see an abuser coming into prison being an extension of the experience that they had. Or... They have children that they can never touch again, that they can never hug again. And imagine, Van, if you were doing life and you had a four-year-old, five-year-old daughter that you could never hug, that you had to look behind bulletproof glass, and here in comes this son of a bitch just strolling in, knowing that he done touched all these kids. How, how are you going to react? Mm. The way I know everybody that I knew in there reacted, oh, no, that one's mine. So were there lessons in prison that you learned uh, that aided in your transformation? Would you say that prison was, for you, uh, um, a necessary thing? Was it something that you had to go through? I wouldn't say that it was, it was necessary, but at the same time, I think my mom said it best to me. She goes, I don't think you belonged in there. I don't think that that, that was necessarily the only thing that could have helped you, but I also don't know what else would have stopped you hmm. from the life that you were living. Right. So I what mean, did you do immediately when you came out? Uh, well, that's a very, very good point. I appreciate that bringing that up. Uh, my father and my mom uh, said, okay, you can't be paroled to this house jobless. So you have to get a job and it, or enroll in school. So basically what I did is I, I got uh, these little catalog pamphlets and I signed up to go to, uh, to college, like probably a month after I, I was on parole. So I was on a job hunt the moment I got out. But then again, I've always had a job, even before I was a rapper. My, my dad was a really hard man. So he was like, when, I, when we came here to this country when I was about three, he was like, nah, you're not going to grow up like these fat, lazy American kids. You can go get a fucking job. So I had a job when I was 12 years old repairing TVs and VCRs. So I've always been good at electronics. I always held down a gig. I always had my little money on the side. you know. And then I had people that alerted me, just fam in Harlem that were like, hey, listen, America's not a capitalist system. It's a Ponzi scheme. And I said, well, what do you mean? They said, well, in high school, you talk about capitalism. Oh, I'm about my money. I'm getting my money. They said, look at all these dumb niggas in Harlem. Look at, look, look at all them. I'm getting my money. Okay, who's teaching you how to get this money? Hmm? Even if you're the best hustler in the world, you make $500,000 among you three niggas and no one gets caught. No one rats on each other. You make it out fine. How are you going to wash $500? You know how to wash $500, old nigga? Because I guarantee you don't. That's the problem when you deal with people who are pseudo-intellectual hustlers. This is what I'm saying. You're setting yourself up to go to prison forever. The other problem is that we live in a capitalist system, and in high school, I've never seen a high school ever, and I went to a gifted high school. I went to a high school with Chris Hayes and Lin-Manuel Miranda and Martin Shkreli and a whole lot of other very intelligent people, but not once in that goddamn high school did they ever tell us. And this was a gifted school. When you go to college... Don't get the credit card that charges you 30% with the free tote bag and a stupid t-shirt in front of your college. No one ever gave us the wherewithal to do that. Number one way children die, toddlers, 
black, brown, white, yellow, whatever color, whatever race, whatever religion in this country is not through any other means but drowning. The top one accidental uh, uh, amount of deaths in this country. Where are the swimming classes in, in, in grammar school? Where are they? That's how little this country give a fuck about you. Where are the, where are the, where are the economic education classes, right? It's a capitalist society. Everyone's supposed to learn how to play the video game, right? No, no one knows how to play the video game. It's a Ponzi scheme. So when I look at it from that perspective, I have to be humbled. I have to say that I have to be self-reliant as a person, and especially as a person of color, and especially as a Latino who accepts his African roots and has never been raised to be racist or discriminatory that way. Mm. You know? So with everything that you know now, right, and like people that get into your music, like I said, you talk geopolitics, you talk really the entire ball of wax, right? That's kind of what your, what your rhymes are about, what your, uh, what your message, what your ministry is, people to be more educated, and if you're more educated on things, you have more uh, tools in your bag to get... Um, building in society. What's one thing that you feel like everyone should know, but they don't know? Their connection to the past. I feel like, especially working at, out of a place called uh, the Natural History Museum um, in New York City, American Natural History Museum, a magnificent place. Um, I've had some issues with who they've been collecting funding from recently, but I'll get at y'all later on my time about that. Mm. Um, but what I think is interesting is I've taken plenty of groups of young children from Harlem, and they had a beautiful exhibit about the comparative analysis between mummification, mummification in Egypt among uh, the African dynasties, right, before they painted Egypt as white Cleopatra and all this other horse shit sure. when it was or black, black yeah. right? Yeah. And then they had a comparative analysis of uh, the place I'm from, from Peruvian mummification. And they said, obviously, this is the difference. In Egypt, they had people remove the internal organs, place them in a jar to hold, because they believed that the gods would come to earth and regenerate, rejuvenate the kings and queens of that time and the people who served them, to rise them up from the dead. And whereas the indigenous people, even though their mummification process begins in 6000 BC, which is 1500 years before the Egyptian mummification process, there was no removing of the internal organs. Instead, the Peruvians buried their mummies in a fetal position because the indigenous people believed in a spiritual rebirth. They believed that when the gods came down, it wasn't a physical dissension, but rather that the body would open up like a hole and you would be reborn into another body, into another frame. And I feel like when you find someone who doesn't have any connection to themselves and you show them this and you say, look, you're part of something that's older than these projects. You're part of something that's older than this city. You're part of something that's older than this fucking country. And believe me, when this country is gone, you'll still be a part of this and your lineage will still be a part of that. I think that that's a gigantic impact on people. And it doesn't just have to be with black, brown people. It could be with any people in the world, as long as that relationship and that part of the past is contextualized. So there's a difference in between looking at Germanic artifacts that explain that your people came from Vandalia and they ended up somewhere in Spain, or looking at something contemporary that's offensive and stupid like a Confederate flag, like a flag uh, flown by losers. That's mm -hmm. the difference, right? right? Because not all revolutions are for a good reason. Some of the revolutions that have happened throughout the, the human history have been for a negative reason, have been for selfish reasons, or have been for misguided ones. Well, my dad says that knowing the past doesn't necessarily mean celebrating it. And he, he, he would, uh, <laughs> almost every show I say something that my dad says. That's positive. I love my father. Matt, don't good. look at me like that. See how he's looking at me? <laughs> uh, you don't want me to love my dad? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Happy Father's Day, Day to all Happy the fathers. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. So, you, you, knowing your past doesn't necessarily mean you have to celebrate it. 
um, sometimes the failures of the past are as important uh, as the triumphs of the past. It's interesting that you mentioned that because um, very early on in my time here at TMZ, you know, uh, I was talking to uh, one of my coworkers here, this Jewish guy, right? And uh, early on, we were having a, a, a discussion um, about just God and differences in religion and stuff like that, because I try to, you know, share, share cultural experiences with my coworkers. And he explained to me that he was an atheist, and we were talking about that, and I told him about the sort of the, uh, the taboo that exists, um, at least in the, the community that I grew up with, that you would say you were anything before you would say that you were an atheist. That was the last thing that you would say you were. Mm-hmm. Um, but some months after this, this guy, uh, he says to me, he's like, uh, you know, um, you know, I'm not going to be at work tomorrow. Tomorrow's one of the holy days I'm going to temple. And I remember I, I said, listen, you told me you were an atheist. So, like, why are you going to temple? And he, he explained to me then, he goes, well, that doesn't really have anything to do with God per se. It has to do with all the people that have gone to temples before me. It has to do with the remembrance of those people and what they went through. It has to do with thousands and thousands of years of preserving a tradition so that it will be around for thousands and thousands of more years. I considered that. I considered what it meant for someone to know that no matter what they have going on in their life, no matter what they have uh, sort of to aspire to, that there's something that connects them to a group of people that is larger than them. And I was thinking about the African-American experience here in America and how everything about black people is sort of preached at as Okay, that was then, what about now? Forget sure. about all of this stuff. Even the things that we do, because there's a whole bunch that we don't know, right? We, tw- we 23 me and ourselves to death to try to find out where we actually come from. But even the things that went on in this country, we're taught every single day that in order to empower ourselves, we have to begin anew mm-hmm. right away. Forget about this, forget about that. And it almost seems like that's being purposefully engineered so that we don't think that there's anything to link us. Do you believe that there is, that the miseducation that happens for black and brown people, not just black and brown people, but from marginalized people as in women and other people like that, do you believe that this stuff is agenda or is it accident? I think it obviously began as agenda in the same way that uh, I'm releasing an album called The Middle Passage soon, so I had to do a lot of history. Um, and part of it was understanding uh, what you brought up as a first part of your statement, which is our relationship to God and our relationship to religion and those two things being entirely separate entities, mm-hmm. right? Um, so in the very beginning, the Christianization of African people during the first part of the Middle Passage was not for the creation of Christianized people. It was, it was for the subjugation right, of people. To sub, yeah, right. to, and then later on, the interpretation of that became when individuals began using that word as a cry for freedom. Right. We saw a glimpse of that in the Nat Turner story, but we have to always remember that that was a part of the vast majority of American stories. You know, that the, was, the interesting thing is the way to truly... Um, subjugate any group of people is to make them accept your language and your religion. Right, but also to make them forget that they're human beings Mm -hmm. because the human being itself look, Moses is dated to 1850 BC, so that's how far we go back with a lawgiver. Our people uh, existed 
before 1850 BC, mm -hmm. right? African society existed before that. So when you're talking about black history, this is what I learned in Harlem, we're not really talking about black history. We're talking about human history. World we're history. talking about the first people to domesticate animals. We're talking about the first people to do woodworking, the first people to work in metallurgy, the first people to invent the idea of God. But humble yourself, human beings. We didn't even invent music. Before human beings, there were Neanderthals, and Neanderthals had early bone instruments, and they had drums, primitive drums. They would put an animal skin over an immobile stump and play over it. Or there are tufts of hair around holes over the uh, opening of certain caves inside the cave infrastructure, and that means that the Neanderthals or the or anthropologists surmise mm -hmm. and the majority of them surmised that there were certain rhythms and patterns that were put there. So this is before the existence of human beings. And if you're telling me that it's not music just because it's not written down, then how do you justify jazz? Isn't that music? It's not written down. And it could be changed a million times as long as it's a similar rhythm. So therefore, these individuals, these hominids that predate human beings had that. What's our cultural connection to them? What's our cultural connection to these things that happen? Well, to stay with your question, and to stay with the premise of it, um, up until World War II, you know, Israel wasn't called it was Israel. It was called Palestine. And right. Iraq wasn't even called Iraq. It was called Mesopotamia. Yeah. And these countries and these lines were drawn by different people. And it's not just the tradition of, let's say, Christianity and Judaism, but I've extended that hand to my friends that happen to be from a Muslim background. And I point out to them, let's have an honest conversation here. We cannot show the Prophet Muhammad's face, peace be unto him, but we show his hands extended to people. So then the question becomes, if you're a student of history and you realize that the place that the Prophet Muhammad is born, peace be unto him, is, uh, uh, is noted as being a colony of Ethiopia only 50 years prior, then you have to ask yourself, is it just Jesus that was black? Or what if it was Moses? But it had to be Moses. What it had to be Abraham. What it had to be all these people that have some sort of ethnicity. And we've allowed them to have their culture and their ideas and their interpretation of what God is torn from them, taken to a different community, then repackaged and rebranded and given back to us. It's kind of like what happens to black and brown people here. You think you live in poor countries, right? No, they're the richest countries. All the resources are taken out of those countries, sent to somewhere else to build a phone that you then get sold back to you for a thousand percent higher rate. So it's built into the hustle of who you are. And I think part of the connection that prevents people from doing that is agenda because the firmament part of it is if we're all talking about how we all are about our money and we, we're getting our paper and we're trying to be financially stable and that's a code word for that because some of us have never had that, then why is it that most young children who are from a black or brown experience don't know the wealth of their ancestors, don't know that an African man named Mansa Musa was the richest Rich person ever who ever lived, who funded part of the Italian Renaissance, who crashed the gold market, right? And we also have to recognize that if we've had that experience from one side of the world, then who else throughout history has also had these experiences? We've also had an African emperor of Rome, right? His name was Lucius Septimus Severus. His mother was an African princess from Carthage and his father was a white senator from Rome. So we had, a, a, the Roman Empire had an Obama in what? In the second or third century. And what does that prove to you? Did it change the nature of Rome? No, it was still an empire. And similarly to the way we can look at Obama's presidency here and say, well, did America become Camelot? Did America become Wakanda because he was here? Absolutely not. 
America was always the same place it's always been, and it's your fault for thinking that it was going to be anything different. It's okay to live with hope, but it's bad to set yourself up with unrealistic expectations because the best indicator of future behavior is past behavior. If someone's been an abuser to you and your people before, they're going to continue to be an abuser to you and your people. In I the think future. the Obama thing, and it's very interesting. Um, the Obama thing comes down to a couple of things. Number one, uh, our wantingness and willingness to uh, believe that at some point good wins, our wantingness and believe and 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 willingness to believe that we can even identify good when we see it. Okay, and then third, something actually happened that a lot of us thought was never going to happen, which um, it it. it it didn't seem likely, uh, at least not for, you know, especially, should I say, not for my parents and grandparents, that they would see a black president. It, di it didn't seem likely. So when they saw it, the nigga might as well have walked on water. I mean, like, I, it, I'm it, from Harlem. The party when he was elected was, was insane. Was, was, was crazy. from 125th to the other. There was a subway car that was being transported. The subway car was commandeered, and it was driven across 125th Street with people dancing over it. There was an Afro-Cuban band that was on 25th in front of the state building. Everything, all the stops were pulled out. But here's the problem, and this is where I've had a lot of contention with some of my quote-unquote liberal friends over this. Sure. And I've, I've consistently brought this point I'm up. feeling you're about to give an unpopular opinion on Barack Obama. No, it's not just that. Mm -hmm. It's a much more deeper statement. I have pictures of people that have been killed that are now honored by the Black Lives Matter movement, right? Mm -hmm. People like Trayvon, people like Mike Brown, people like Tamir Rice. And I hear this, and believe me, I, I've had this conversation with so many people, and look, there's only two ways to see it. You're going to see it the right way, or you're going to see it the propaganda way. Um, I have pictures of those people, and people say that Black Lives Matter, but they shouldn't just matter in America. If you're saying that black lives matter and they only matter in America, then you, my friend, are a piece of propaganda and a sellout, and you don't really understand the meaning of that phrase, black lives matter. You're talking about a global issue. The Libyan slave trade is part of black lives matter. South Africa and apartheid and the, the recurrence and people still dealing with whatever leftover part of that is part of black lives matter. So then the question then becomes, I have other pictures I told them, and I've said this in private rooms with these people, but now it's okay for me to say this in public because they already been addressed from face to face as close as I am with you mm -hmm. and I say sir I have other pictures of other kids of other little black and brown kids but they're from Sudan they're from Somalia they're from Ethiopia they're from Yemen and they've been blown apart by a drone they've been blown apart by some casual airstrike and you said that they were collateral damage and when I hear you speak sir as a Democrat as a person who's supposed to speak for human rights and be one of the good guys I hear the same excuses for why those kids are dead that I hear about little black and brown kids in a hood from supposedly racist Republicans. And I'm not sitting here saying that they're not racist. I'm saying that their inadvertent apathy to that sort of thing and their excuses and their apologies that are made for that policy that existed under their president and those children that are dead are a direct, uh, 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 are direct contrast to the to the human rights championship that they claim that they have, right? Mm -hmm. That's the problem that I have with it. Who's going to speak for those dead children? Do their lives not matter? Is it okay to give their parents twelve hundred dollars and say, "Hey, your fucking kid's dead. Take care of yourself," because that's what you get. 
Mm. You know, if we were in L.A. here, right, and someone took their family hostage, let's say those group of people were a family, and one of them takes everybody hostage, and the LAPD comes there and they say, okay, release your family, sir, or you know what I mean? And the guy says no. And after a little while, what happens? The cops shoot up the entire car and kill everyone. You guys, of course, would report that here at TMZ. Cops shoot up the car, kill everyone. They're not going to be heroes. People are going to say, man, you killed everybody to save the family. Well, the family's not safe. They're all dead. But then you ask yourself, what are we doing overseas? Bombing 50,000 people so we can get one asshole, 12 people? You killed everyone in the car to get one person. That's not even acceptable here. Why would it be acceptable in another place, mm-hmm. right? The idea that people have no due process, you know, that, that, was, the sa- that was the same problem. So, and that doesn't change depending on a Democrat or Republican because we're an empire. Right. So I, I, I'll ask you this. I don't, I don't see a distinction um, because I think the, the droning and a lot of the other sort of, uh, <laughs> I think that Obama was wrong. In, in, a, in a lot of different situations. The droning obviously was reprehensible. I was going to say deplorable, but that has a connotation. There. But also, brother, not to interrupt you, but the, 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 the droning was done with metadata. That's what's left out of it. And there's a, there's a great article written by a brother named Jeremy Scahill and another individual whose name escapes me. Please pardon me. Um, but the, the drones were done with metadata, which means that's done with a phone. That means that whoever has that phone is the intended target, which means whoever got that phone that day is the person who gets blown up, not the intended target. So you give your son a phone to go to the store. That's who gets the, 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 the missile dropped on them from the drone. So, and, and obviously what happened in, in, in Libya was a disaster. This was, I'll ask you this, a couple of questions. Um, hmm. And this is just to, this is not to absolve Obama or absolve no, any American sure, uh, president of anything, but a couple of things. Number one, in your opinion, being so well-versed in this, how do you fight the war on terror? Hmm. Um, and, and, and I ask that question from the very basic understanding of there are people that are plotting on the United States. Um, sure. uh, and there needs to be an apparatus in order to fight them. How do you do it and at the same time minimize drone strikes and other things like that if you have actionable intelligence as to where those people are? How do we, how do we responsibly fight this war, in your opinion? I'll take the first part of your question first. How do we stop, how do we stop terrorism? Well, we stop it by stopping funding it. Mm-hmm. We stop funding terrorism. Uh, for example, this, this president made a huge deal out of MS-13, right? Yeah. Now, we we're talk about, about Trump, them, now. Trump, right? Yeah. But we'll get back to this because it, it, we're talking about his connection of sure. gangs to terrorism. Mm-hmm. So I say, okay, well, where does MS-13 come from? It comes from the Civil War in El Salvador. Right. So the United States government invested $1.8 billion over a period of, I believe, uh, four or five years into a war during the 70s and 80s. Now, when you look at this particular time, it's as if me and let's say you got into an argument and someone comes in the room and they say, hey, look, I'm just going to leave this gun right here. I'm going to leave this set of kitchen knives right here and I'm going to leave the room. And he leaves them on your side and it's a really long room. That person, if I'm that person and I leave the, the gun here and the knives for you to do whatever, I can't leave the room and then claim that I have no moral responsibility for what goes on in that room. I've created the circumstances that went on in that room. Brother, if you kill someone, Van, and the cops find out that I gave you the gun, who goes down with you? you me. Mm-hmm. 
but those terms don't apply to other people in society. That's the problem. So if something else happens, right? I, I didn't rape her. I just held her down. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. You think you're getting off for that? No. So the way to stop terrorism is to stop funding the wholesale murder of people because you disagree with their political beliefs or political ideologies. Mm -hmm. The other problem is that we have to stop destabilizing governments simply because they don't follow our foreign policy. That's for right? damn sure. And if they have a problem with us, it's been noted in the past that we have every intention of creating a new, a new society or a new government. And I'll give you an example just briefly for the people. Have you ever heard of the Colombian Canal? No, because back in the day, the government in the United States said to Colombia, we want to create a canal for you. And they said, oh, fuck no, we're not doing that. So they said, oh, you know what we'll do? We'll foment a revolution in the northern part of your country. We'll create a country called Panama. You know what I mean? Not to say that the Panamanians aren't their own people. Absolutely. Ever since they were split, they developed their own uh, uh, food a little bit. Obviously, it's very related to Colombia because they used to be one country of people. And they said, oh, thank you very much. We'll give you your own country. Oh, there's one little stipulation here. Uh, we're going to build you a motherfucking canal, and we're going to have it for about 100 years. Mm -hmm. So I think within the scope of that, that's one aspect. The other is this. <sighs> we haven't vetted and we have not used the, the people that fight for this country responsibly at all. You know, the allies that we have, the so-called moderate rebels in Syria. Who were these people? Does anybody know? Does anyone have any reliable or actionable intel on those people? Because after watching someone eat someone else's liver on World Star, watching children be gassed probably by both sides, watching bombs drop on people, it, it, it should dawn on everyone watching this program that America has used radical Islam for its purposes for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. You know, I actually went to Afghanistan um, in, in 2009. And when I went there, I talked to people there who said, yeah, absolutely. When the Americans came, they told us that the Russians were banning the Quran. And when I confronted the Russians about this, when I had uh, plenty of interviews over at Russia Today, I asked them the truth. I said, oh, tell me about Afghanistan. What were your major flaws there? You know, you were supporting the government of Dr. Najib. And did you say that you were going to ban the Quran? And they said, yes, we, we didn't say we were banning the Quran, but we said that we were going to take it out of its... Uh, out of the legal aspect of, of what it offers to the people. Oh, so you were outlawing Sharia law, which was a good thing, right? And then turning it into an interpretive society. Because if you look at Afghanistan, you look at Iraq during the 70s, these are people who were a totally Muslim society, but they wore bell bottoms, right? The girls had many skirts. It wasn't like, you know, Salafist, Saudi, hide your face, can't drive a car. Well, now the, the royalty can drive a car, right? Whatever. So the purpose of it being that we used radical Islam there, we used it in Syria, we used it in so many other places. During World War I, uh, the Germans used the Turks as a specific uh, 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 backdrop to try and support them. And in response, you know, Europe's idea was to take Turkey and cut it up for its own purpose. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the interesting part about where terrorism comes into play. England sold us all of their all of their monopoly properties. If you ever play Monopoly and you just get fed up with yeah. the game, I don't want to play no more. I'm selling this all. Uh, uh, Israel and Palestine used to be called Transjordan. It included what's modern day Palestine, what's modern day Israel, what's modern day Jordan. That was all of England's problem. Transjordan. Iraq was Mesopotamia. Iraq, Iran, all these other Kuwait, all these little Gulf states. Mesopotamia. 
Arabia was Arabia Phoenix from the Roman times. They still had these nicknames. They broke it up into different countries and principalities. Egypt was something that was specifically their problem. You know, Egypt was something that uh, Britain struggled with with Nasser for years. They were trying to break it up. They didn't want a Suez Canal. They wanted to control every fucking thing. So what happened? All of these situations got sold off to America. Now if something happens in Egypt, whose problem is it? Is it England? Is it the fucking Queens? Uh, is it Meghan Markle and Harry that are going to handle that? No! No, no, no. You know who has to handle that? We installed a military dictatorship in Egypt just now and said, okay, fine, run this shit. You know, we continued the, the, the Bush policy, the Bush doctrine, which was knocking over countries that weren't right to us and that didn't follow our public policy. Right. So Obama then said, okay, well, we've gotten rid of all these other places. What about Tunisia, right? What about Syria, uh, Libya, Egypt? All of these other things got handled and they got thrown in the mix. The reason that we have so many issues with our partners de doing with it is because when Europe was was carving up the the old Ottoman Empire, the Turks at Turks, that particular yeah. time, they took different slices and they won't fight for other people's slices. So the Franks, the French people, they took Syria and they took Lebanon and they said, OK, fine, then they'll take Morocco and a bunch of other stuff. But. It was the Brits who got all this other stuff. So when it was time to go to Iraq and America and, and England were ready to go, what did France say? No, I'm not going to Iraq. That ain't my slice. And everyone said, oh, they're cowards. They're freedom fries. Remember this shit about the French being... Can't wait to change being, the name being, of French fries. Oh, the French are all pussy. <laughs> da, da, da. Well, let right. me tell you something. For the people I know that are Haitian, they definitely know that the French are brutal people. Right. And they're still charging them gold for, for, for freeing their slaves now. So don't talk to me about them being pussy. They're not pussy because they like wine. They're some of the most violent people if you look throughout history. They've been in the game. They've been in the game since before the fall of Rome. Mm. So they understand what, what it is. I just think to extend that point is to now look at it from the other perspective. When it came to Syria, right? Mm -hmm. That was an England slice. So they said, no, I'm not going. And you look at it and you say, well, wait a minute. Who else had a hand in this war? Russia. And what was Russia's part? The Caucasus Mountain region. That's why they look at Chechnya. That's why they looked at Georgia. And that's why they looked at all those countries up there, Azerbaijan, Armenia. I know there's an population here. As that's going to be in our sphere of influence because you promised it to us. So America and the West, their attitude in Russia is don't get brave and try to tell us what to do with our slice. We're going to now tell you what to do with your slice. Oh, you want to be involved up here in the Caucasus Mountain region? Okay, you want to have a, a foment of revolution here in the Ukraine and fuck us over? Well, now we're going to play a worldwide game of chess. And now the, the, the piece on the board is Syria. And now I'm going to make you bleed on there. You're going to extend resources. You're going to lose American credibility. You're going to be arguing with each other about whether you should intervene or not. And we, the spotlight isn't even on us anymore. Hmm. So... In terms of generating terror, I, I see your point about um, not funding terror. Okay, what I would ask you, with your obvious vast knowledge, is the terrorist cells that operate now, in terms of Al Qaeda, in terms of ISIS, in terms of uh, Boko Haram. I mean, like in terms of uh, different places, like different entities like that. If they are to be controlled or eradicated. First of all, do you believe that they need to be controlled or eradicated? Secondly, if they are to be controlled and eradicated, um, how do you do it now and simultaneously minimize the damage to people that quite often comes when there is warfare? If you get lung cancer, the doctor's going to want to know how you got it, right? Mm -hmm. You can't say, okay, that's not important. I don't want to talk about how I smoke well, no, lungs. No, 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 right. no. You, no, you, you, you can tell him, but then after that, he's got a cure to cancer. 
Right, but this is this is the perspective. It can't be cured unless we understand how it came to be. Let's say right? that we do understand now. Right. And so but, now what? Because what? The, and the reason why I ask that question is because it's not to absolve. No, no, no. It, it's because when you look at some of the tactics that are the wrong tactics in terms of droning, in terms of different situations like that, I'd like to know what you think are the right ones. Well, the right ones, uh, and it's a. I'm not trying to divert from the topic because I, I want to attack it straight on, but the right ones are asking the question about how we got there first, and I think that that's important because a name like Tim Osmond is not particularly familiar to a lot of the people that are watching this show. They say, who's Tim Osmond? But if I say the name Osama bin Laden, then everybody watching this show is going to know who that is. Well, Tim Osmond was what Osama bin Laden's name was when he worked for the CIA. Why was it okay for him to work for there and set up uh, 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 you know, kill teams for him to work in Mazar al-Sharif and kill people who weren't opposed to the American, uh, who were opposed to any, any sort of uh, uh, deal with the Russians or making sure that they left at a particular time? No, they wanted a total war until they had to remove themselves physically from the platform. Hmm. So I guess to say it, it's not a question of just being as easy and as deflective as saying stop funding terrorism, but then we have to have a direct conversation about the people who we branded as terrorists who used to work for us and saying, are we gonna continue that policy in the future? Not only saying, hey, we gotta stop the cancer, but how do we stop the cancer from coming back in the future and saying, okay, not just curing this, but stoppage, and then saying, we're not getting rid of the symptoms, we're curing the disease. Saddam Hussein was a man who worked for us. We gave him billions of dollars to go to war with Iran, mm -hmm. right? The people that we talk about in, our, in, in the length of our society, you know, these are individuals who we now fund to do what we need to do. We say, oh, Saudi Arabia is, is a terrible country. Okay, well, we don't say that about them. We like them. Well, but I'm just saying <laughs> the human rights advocates. That, right. That, the, the human rights advocates that, that right. completely scream about It doesn't matter what them. the Saudi Arabians do. Like, <laughs> but, but I think that, that's, right. a, that's a perfect understanding for how we, we live in our society. And I think mm -hmm. you, you just hit it on the nose there. We don't care about the moral character of the people that represent us. We just want them to win. And it was funny, I read an article in the Christian Science Monitor about Trump and how evangelicals view him. And some of the priests and the bishops there said, we don't view him as a moral man. We view him like the Emperor Constantine. The Emperor Constantine was not a moral man. He was a pagan. But at the same time, he advanced the cause of Christianity. He advances our cause. So it's like any one of you that starts a company and they say, I'm going to grow this company from nothing to something. And in a, in a year, you make a billion dollars, but your CEO's like sexually harassing and raping girls at your company. But the problem is that you're okay with that. And then you have to realize that if you're not okay with that, then you're not one of those people that's cut out to be a billionaire. You're not one of those people that's willing to make those sacrifices. Terrorism is the crux of that. Billions of dollars, the willingness to say, okay, I don't care about the moral character, the moral turpitude of any of this shit. As long as this person wins for me, just win. Just do what I want you to do. Just kill. I don't care how, how fucked up you are. It doesn't matter what your treatment is of children. It doesn't matter what your political ideology or your political philosophy is. You're a mercenary. You're, you're, you're not here for jihad. This isn't a fucking holy war. You're getting paid to do this shit. You know? You're, you're not here because you're on vacation. This isn't a Muslim vacation. You niggas is getting paid. Huh? 
This isn't some. This isn't some moral a- attribute that I'm that I'm expanding to to, to further society's benefits. This is something that another country came to me as an ex-paid soldier of a defunct Middle Eastern military that doesn't exist anymore and said, do you want to live in the desert and eat rocks and grass or would you like hundreds of thousands of dollars to kill people for another entity that promises to bring some modicum of stability to the region? Mm. And that has never been challenged or questioned in the history of this country. That's never even been brought up as a subject matter. And I think until we have that conversation, we can't can't stop the flow of it. So even if we stop one instance of terrorism and you say we have reliable intel to stop terrorism, well, how does that stop the 10 things that comes after it? Because we realize that the top number of people that have been terrorizing us or have been continuously threatening the United States of America are people that we used to fund. We're scared of ISIS. Who was helping ISIS? I'm sorry, this is not a conspiracy theory show, but in order to destabilize President Assad in Syria, we supported ISIS in Syria. We said that we didn't support them in Iraq, but the people who were ISIS in Syria then said, oh, fuck this, let's take the weapons that are coming in to help us in Syria and give them to the people in Iraq. Right. So, yeah, without a doubt, I I guess, so... When and I'll come back to this in a second because sure. I, I want to delve deeper deeper into it. But when you when you look at the United States and its standing in the world from a geopolitical kind of uh, lens, do you think that the United States of America has been too destabilizing in its uh, history, both near and distant history? to expect safety? Well, I would say that it's been destabilizing within its own borders to itself. Because I remind you... Without a doubt. But I mean, we're we're talking about an international sense. But but I think that's that's the connection that we're not making, Van. Mm -hmm. Every practice that we see now that the United States has has been tested on Native American people for the past few years. Right. Prisons. Okay, you want an open-air prison, let's create a reservation. The prison of tagging people and taking them. The idea of taking away somebody else's children and putting them through a process where they become Christianized and whiteified. And that was done to indigenous people's children, ripped off the reservation, pushed for them. And we honor them by what? By naming weapons after them? Right, the Tomahawk missile, missile. right, the Apache helicopter. No, that's not the legacy of those people. The legacy of indigenous people is that they helped early colonists create America, the system that we have now, a federal system where we have states' rights. I hear Southerners scream about states' rights. We heard states' rights during prison time, excuse me, during the time in which America was fighting a a civil war, states' rights. The idea that there is a larger entity, right, like the, 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 the federal government, but that there are individual states that have their own laws that the people there respect that are different than now. So fuck you, I'm from California, I don't have to obey those racist fucked up laws from Nebraska about how you can't smoke weed, I can do that and and enjoy my life. I don't have to go to prison for five years in a state like Montana who doesn't have weed, where it's as as here. Mm -hmm. That comes from the Iroquois Federation, something that Congress admitted that they particularly took from indigenous people. So until we confront the idea that every American policy that we have far and wide has been tested on people here, we're never gonna understand that. going to know what we're really dealing with you know we hear all about plantations right plantations oh people were picking cotton you know what the fucked up part is van you know what plantations we've never seen on television that people won't show us Mm. the breeding plantations 
Mm-hmm. I, I talk about this a lot, but we don't have these conversations enough. There's only one movie where I've ever seen a breeding plantation, and that's a movie called Goodbye Uncle Tom, which is a Absolutely. very, very hard movie to watch, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Where they geld people, where they show yeah. you like the actual experience of transforming somebody. But but where else have they shown you a stable that looks like a factory farm where girls as young as nine? Two as old as 20 are kept and only mated with one individual forcibly. Mm. You know, how is that not the same thing as a rape room that Saddam has, right? Well, it is the same thing. I, exactly. I think that there's actual reasons why uh, things like that are, are downplayed and um, or downplayed or completely washed away. It's because um, I'm reading a book right now on the denazification of, uh, of Europe, right? Oh, okay. On the denazification of Germany. Uh, uh, and it's interesting to me about what German society had to do in order to denazify. It wasn't a simple thing. Um, and the Nazis weren't around that long. The Nazis were, uh, they were only there at most 10, 15 years, depending on when you want to give the Nazi. Mm. But it was a comprehensive effort of the entire country to identify to give reparations to a lot of Jews, to identify the Nazis as being evil, to force the country into understanding just how putrid and bad the whole thing was. Beyond what happened at Nuremberg, beyond all the laws that were had to make, they had to usher people into theaters and make them watch videos from the Holocaust, make them watch emaciated Jewish people, make the country feel not only um, that it was uh, politically bad, and but it was morally wrong what had happened. Right. But there was also not a Breitbart Germany at the time convincing right. them that they were absolutely right, right, that Hitler was a genius, that and people the, and, didn't work. And right. that is the difference. The difference <laughs> is that here, like, things ended, right? Things ended, they, they go away, and then right away, Everybody had to figure out how to hold hands again. And a lot of the people that were in power here still were in power post-Civil War and into Reconstruction. And they wanted to reestablish economic ties with these people. They didn't want them to feel so bad about themselves. So what was left, uh, especially in the South, was a feeling of, ah, we had the right idea, but we were in about it the wrong way. So it, a lot of the things that you're talking about, a lot of the true atrocities of slavery and Jim Crow and Reconstruction, we don't talk about them. So those people down there don't feel bad about themselves. Well, here, here's one more unfortunate thing, because I recently studying uh, Civil War history, there are less than 50 uh, reported rapes during the Civil War. And what I mean by that is not that there were 50 women that were raped during the Civil War. There were probably hundreds of thousands. The point that I'm making is that the women that claim that they were raped and were brought before like a regional governor or like a, a ranking officer were white women who were brought there by their respective male a com- a, a companion, mm-hmm. father, grandfather, husband, brother, and said, look, my this white woman was, was, was violated, was taken advantage of. So we want reparations. We demand just due process because we're still citizens of this country. However, here's the sad truth, that after the Civil War, there were over 40,000 rape babies that were born. And most of these, the vast majority of the women that had these children that were um, 
that were created through the process of rape were newly freed black slaves. Hmm. And who were they violated by? A brand new imposing army that had just come down from the north and taken over command of a region. Hmm. And it, it's a very difficult process to understand because it goes to the very heart of the idea that we cannot look at this society from a left or a right paradigm and get a full scope for ourselves as a people, brother. No, evil Especially evil. not you and me. Yeah. We have to look at it from a larger perspective and it's not between the left and right. It's from a revolutionary perspective. So I'm not speaking from a, a, a Democrat perspective or a Republican perspective. I speak or I choose to speak from what I would like to think is a revolutionary perspective because that enables me to admit to myself that this system wasn't necessarily built for me, mm -hmm. that it didn't have me in mind, oh, right? Of course it never did, And, it, yeah. and it, it, that extends itself not just to uh, a slavery, but it also extends itself to immigration, you know? Mm -hmm. Because I think a lot of people forget that when they came to this country, especially uh, European immigrants, they didn't just apply to be citizens. They also applied for whiteness because up until that time, people from Southern Europe that you and I would never say, oh, they're white. Italians, Greeks, Armenians, they were not considered white people. They were like, no, they're not white. No, 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 I won't, I won't have them here. I, they can't live near us. When they applied for whiteness, that's when they got the ability to uh, join the police department, to join the fire department, to not be redlined district into one place. So it's not a question of, of your life being peachy because you happen to come to this country as a Caucasian, but you had advantages during that time that you don't even understand that you had. You had the ability to join unions. That's something that black and brown people were locked out of until only decades ago. So imagine this. What is the police department and being able to join that? That's called political power, ladies and gentlemen. What's called being part of the fire department? Every room in this fucking building has had to be approved by the fire department. They got paid off of every room. It has a little thing that says capacity for this room. Every fucking room you have been in ever in your life watching this show all of y'all somebody from the fire department got paid to come inspect that room mm. and you wasn't one of the people that got paid for the last 400 years so get the fuck out of here with that how do revolutionaries rule that's the most difficult part because i think that part of revolutionary society is that eventually every revolution gets betrayed every revolution eventually betrays how do itself. we break that cycle how do we make how, how do we get by constantly remembering that a revolution is a cycle that it comes back again that a revolution is not just an action but that it's a continuous cycle that it has to come back around again so the people so are are, are then we to believe that in terms of when we talk about re revolution because a lot of times when, when when you look at revolutions you think the people with the right ideas are the ones that are being deprived um, and they're fighting to be able to assert the ideas that would empower them. Right. How do we make sure that when they are empowered, or how should they make sure that when they are empowered, hmm. they don't become exactly like the people that were empowered right before them? You know, my brother, I think what you brought up is one of the main problems with revolutionary societies, you know? Because I have a lot of friends of mine that happen to be Cuban. I was about to say and Che no, no, listen, and Fidel. And this is a very important thing <laughs> right. because one of the one of the secrets that they have or one of the things that's not really talked about when I go down to Miami is how the vast majority of those people were not uh, part of the, or at least now, were not part of the original anti-Castro, you know, society. Not mm -hmm. those people who believe in the sociedad de antes, those individuals that think that everything was fine, right? They were people that fought for the revolution and they said, wait, wait a minute, now this is slightly different. Now factor in all this American propaganda, billions of dollars of funding, people promising you the world that everything's going to be great, and man, we're going to bring Cuba democracy, and then people ask, wait a minute, 
bring it to us the way you brought it to Iraq, mm. bring us democracy the way you brought it to Libya, bring us democracy the way you brought it to Egypt. America, you forget who you are. You're, you're a broke pimp. You don't go anywhere and, and bring people democracy. You go to places and set up shop for your companies to then be able to get cheap resources, right? This is what happens to Exxon. it. Irrespective of just that, but now we've gone to another place. Now we've gone to the place of precious metals because everything is screens, everything is phones, everything is computers. Mm -hmm. So we want tungsten, we want nickel, we want copper, we want all these things that people laugh at and scoff at. Why do you think your pennies are made out of zinc right now? You get a penny right now, I guarantee you it's not made out of copper. It's made out of fucking zinc. And why? Because the copper costs more. That little copper involved in your penny costs more than that fucking one worthless American cent, right? Because it can be used as a magnificent conductor. And when people don't do the knowledge on that, they begin to forget that that's the real reason that we've decided to stay in these countries. We don't ever go somewhere and free it and leave. We're still in Japan. We're still in Korea. The fucking war's been over. We're still in Germany. They pay well, us a billion dollars to stay there. Every war that's ever been fought is about resources. Uh, and also about the inner consolidation rather than the distraction of the outer consolidation. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, brings it to the heart. And kind of back to your question about terrorism. What people also don't realize is when you talk about things like the Crusades. and Oh, the Crusades. What were, what were that about? Oh, that was that fight between Christians and Muslims. And then I laugh and say, well, I'm sorry, that's wrong. And they say, well, what do you mean wrong? And I said, ah, you've never been to college? You've never been past high school? An incomplete answer is a wrong answer. Half the Crusades were against Muslims. But do the knowledge. The other half of the Crusades were against other Christian sects in Europe. Yeah. The Cathar Crusade, right? The Livonian Crusade. The Fourth Crusade that overthrew Constantinople. Every Greek person I've ever met in my life knows about that one. 1204 AD. This is the, re this is the reality. If we're doing things to distract people from the inner consolidation of power in America, we can say, oh, we're doing fighting terror overseas. We're doing all these things. We're creating these laws to keep people safe. But we're not. We're creating laws to consolidate power inside America mm -hmm. because secretly this country has envied authoritarian societies. Mm -hmm. They envy the fact that they can tell people what to do and other people obey. They envy that even though it's not supposed to be part of our society. Mm -hmm. We're supposed to have a choice. But once you realize that your real choice, ladies and gentlemen, is between Pepsi and Coke, then you start to realize, well, damn, did I have a choice between the red pill and the blue pill? Was the same thing in the red pill that was in the blue pill? Mm -hmm. Is it just a different imagery that I get between one and the other? Mm -hmm. That's the problem that we have to confront. I'm gonna, we're going to role play right now. Sure. I'm going to be uh, what I used to be. I'm going to ask you one last question. Now. One last question I want to mm -hmm. ask you. You are like the epitome of woke. Lauren hasn't said it. She hasn't said anything over here because she's, she's swimming in the wokeness and she's learning. And I was taking notes. I know. You're yeah. learning. What is the most unwoke, most, if you're in a room full of people, if you're in that Pan-African conference and you guys are all sharing ideas about the movement, you guys are all sharing ideas about uh geopolitics and classism and racism and sexism, what is your most unpopular opinion amongst those people? Something that would make them give you a side eye. Is there anything that is... I don't know. I don't know if there's anything necessarily to that community because that would mean that I would have to speak for all of them as if there was some universal thing that they all said. There's not, but there's not a universal thing, but there are shared opinions. You know what I mean? Like right now. Well, name one. 
for example, we 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 seemed to have a conversation about the fact that America uh, is a world evil. Hmm. That's a commonly held notion amongst. If you there there are rooms that there there are rooms that if you went in there uh, or that not even that America is wholly evil that America is responsible for a great deal of the evils that have been revisited onto America. There are rooms that if you went into that room and said that, those people would accuse you of high treason. Unless you said it was about abortion, and then they would praise you and put you on their shoulders. How do you mean? I'm saying if you went into those rooms where you said, or those, those I love America, those MAGA rooms where it's full of people, and you say that if you said America was treasonous and fucked up and unholy and evil, that people would be angry at you. It depends on why you're saying it, it's unholy and mm. unreasonable. Right? Gotcha. So if it's the context of why it's unholy, if you said, for example... Well, before the, but, but before the right. reason I outlined. Right. You know what I mean? Like, so like, for, like for the reason I outlined. Like, for hurting people and doing specific for, things. For a lot of them, was, you're right about that because... There are a lot of people. I remember when 9/11 happened. Pat Robertson said it was because of our we of gay marriage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it was because mm-hmm. it was because Pat. No, like uh, but, sure. you know, Pat Robertson of Falwell when 9/11 happened, he said because. Well, yeah, he said that it was because mm-hmm. of of you, you know what I mean. I, I get it, but what I'm saying is there are a set of ethics and a set of a set of values that each p- particular side holds. First of all, do you do you think that that's true? Because if you don't, that's cool too. Um, and is there anything outside of that? Is there anything that you think most woke people think that you don't think is, is true? I, I think it's it's hard to gauge because a lot of people, uh, it depends on their real experience. And also, I wouldn't necessarily call them woke people because mm-hmm. just, it's like... I don't like, like the term, by the way. Right, no, it's not, it's not that I don't like the term. It, to me, it means as much as the word conscious. Conscious and woke are similar in that sense. A conscious person simply means that they're awake. But that doesn't mean that they're going to do anything. Motivation and that being the number one thing to take someone to the level where they have to be. You see, we all human beings, we share something very, very unique. That you can enslave us. You can keep us down. But you better be prepared to stay on the ground with us. You have to get as dirty as we are. You have to filthy yourself with who we are. You have to be on the ground holding us down with all of your strength. You think even still? Because the moment you let go... It doesn't matter what race, creed, color, him or her. We will rise and we will demand justice. Mm. That is the nature of all humans. White, black, brown, woman, man, Christian, Muslim, Jewish, Hindu, atheist. We are a people that will not stand for that. We will rise to some point. As to the conversation about what we believe on a whole going across the board, right? Um, That's the problem. If I'm in certain rooms with people that I've met in Harlem, for example, who will say, okay, we believe that all white people are devils, right? And mm-hmm. I'll have an, a, a very, very open conversation with them and say, okay, cool. Where it's just as pos- possible for me to be, go to some room where you say and say, oh, well, you know, we think since the t- statistics are there and all black people do the crime, then they must be all criminals. Mm-hmm. Okay, so whatever you think you know about a society has now turned into you taking this and you becoming a social scientist to discover new things. So my thing is I'll deal with the, the people first, right, the, the first group of people first, and say, okay, well, where are we really getting this from, you know? Are, are we getting this because this is some doctrine? from someone, okay, well let's look at whatever doctrine has been set up or who is that, who's ever had severe criticisms of white people in the past. Um, when it comes to a black perspective, right? We had people like, uh, totally respectful of uh, different people's religions, 
but there were definitely individuals who spoke about that during the movement. However, if you go back and look at the people who originated that thought, the people that predate uh, Elijah Muhammad, the people that predate um, Master Farad Muhammad, the person that he learned from, you run into an individual, a more by the name of Noble Drew Ali. And Noble mm, Drew Ali is, Drew is a very interesting character mm -hmm. because in his books and in his writings, he claims that European people, they're, they're not necessarily devilish by nature, but rather that their societies were set up over one another. So therefore, they simply created a devilish society that corrupted the soul of their people because in a sense, they are black people. And that brings us back to the first people. You go and have a lovely conversation with a wall and you learn nothing, but you go to a museum and you read something and it says there in the museum when I bring the young kids in there, all people, even white people, come from black people. Oh, okay. So you that don't like these people because you think they have the propensity to do something, which, by the way, you've projected on them because everything you accuse them of, you've done. Oh, they steal. No, nigga, you stole a country. Oh, they like to rape people. No, 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 no. You raped us until you invented Latino people. Right. We didn't exist. Yeah. We were black and indigenous people before that. And now you've created this. So all the things that you accuse other people of, you're guilty of. Oh, those people in Gaza, they want to push the Israelis into the sea. How? They can't even keep the lights on. No, it's the Israelis that are pushing the people from Gaza into the sea. Oh, by the way, when they get to the sea, they bomb their children on the beach. So the question is, understand that the problem that you're dealing with a lot of times is projection in these areas. Not willing to look at these situations and say, okay, well, look at the history of Europe. The word slave has nothing to do with African people. It comes from the word Slav, where people would enslave Eastern European people and take them and use them as slaves in Western Europe. The first transcontinental slave trade has nothing to do with stealing black people. It was the Viking herd that when the early 6th, 7th century would steal women from the shores of Scotland and Ireland and sell them for their weight in silver at the slave markets in Cairo because the Arab lords had seen a black woman, they'd seen a Roman woman, they'd seen a Greek woman, but back in the day you could have fake hair but you couldn't put no fake contacts and they'd said never seen a woman with red hair and blue eyes or green eyes. Sell me her. So when you discover these things, you realize, okay, these people were forcibly Christianized, but very much in many areas, many of them existed in a sort of, I won't say exactly like Native Americans, but their society in Europe was very much more structured like a Native American society, where you had respect for the land, where you said that the ideology of the, the human being was the earth doesn't belong to us, we belong, we to, belong to the earth. Mm -hmm. That's not a European Christianized imperial philosophy. No, that came from Europe becoming a super religious state for over a thousand years and not having any sort of leeway, even to the fact of punishing scientists who would claim that the Earth wasn't the center of the universe. Mm. I mean, this is why people persecuted Galileo, Copernicus, whoever the fuck else. And when you look at it and, and you step back from, from just that observation, you ask yourself first, what, am, what are these people projecting of their own experience and their own pain into the subject? So before I, I say to someone, okay, you're wrong about this, I say, well, has everybody in your life that you've ever met who's like that, treated you like that? What scenario have you been in in your life where the most amount of people, so you think that all people are devils because they come from this background? Well, the only people that you've seen from that background are who? Foster agents, COs, cops, right? It's almost like you're Fuck watching- up lawyers, it's, judges. It's, it's almost like you're watching media. Like I tell people this, if I was a person who grew up in the middle of 
white America, and I had never met or seen a black person before or a Latino person, and all I had to go off them was what the media reports. Could you blame me for being racist? The only thing that I've ever gotten, I never met you. I never talked with you. I never realized, man, you know, you, 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 you kid, you, you're a single black kid. You grew up without your pops. You Luke Skywalker, right? right? That's who you are. But I can't give you that benefit. You can't be Luke Skywalker because he's special. And you're not special. And that's the fucked up part. When you take away the fact that someone's special because they don't look like you. Or, or when you as a teacher can't relate to a student because you can't say, oh, that could have been my kid. Unless you're a teacher that says, oh, these are all my children. These could all be my kid. And you recognize, well, for some of my kids, I have a different problem than other kids. Mm -hmm. Some kids might be perceived as a threat in the way other kids might not be perceived. Mm -hmm. Even though... These kids have done significantly less harm to the world right now than the background of these other children. And yet we don't think and automatically assume that these other children are bad people. And that's wherein falls the projection of statistics. And I tell people to be careful with that because when I run into the second group of people we discussed, the, the idiot, you know, quasi-MAGA racist morons, and they say things like, oh, you know, you know it, black people make up the majority of, of, of statistics of people who steal Latino people make up the majority. Okay, well... Here are some other unpopular statistics about child molestation, and it comes oh. to the white community. Uh, we, so, we, he, so here, here, here it we comes. We just had this conversation so, a couple of. So here, here it comes. My question is, brother, I don't think that you want to go home and fuck your daughter. So you can't think that I want to sit here and steal your purse, mm. right? Because if that's true, if you don't know those statistics on child then, molestation, then, look them up. Then, right. then the other one is true, and I don't think you want to condemn yourself. The problem with racists is that they have not drawn out the complete picture. They've created a box for everyone else without realizing that in creating a box for everyone else, they created a box for themselves to live in. It's not just the prison that you built for everyone else to live in. You have to live in this reinforced role that you've created, and it doesn't add up to what it is. Right. It doesn't conflict with history. That's part of growing up and accepting that the things that you learn were false. For example, I don't call people the F word anymore. I don't make fun of people because they're gay in my music. People say, why'd you do that? My sister was the one that smacked me in my head and woke me up. Mm -hmm. She said in Harlem, you don't call people a, a fag or a gay or I don't use that type of language. But you don't call them that because they're gay, Felipe. You say that because they're soft. But you're a person who, who, who likes history, Felipe, she said. So find me instances in history where you find someone who's ambiguously heterosexual, who's a monster, who you would want no problems with. And it didn't take me long at all to find someone like that. Julius Caesar, you know what I mean? A King Richard the Lionheart, J. Edgar Hoover. These were not soft people. These were people that would rip your life apart in a heartbeat. And they just so happen to like laying down with a dude. So it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to Hoover me. by any means necessary. You see, but you see what I mean? <laughs> yeah. it, 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 it takes you to a point where you're forced to then confront things about yourself. Right. And that's the biggest part about every argument. Knowing that you have the limberness to learn something even from an idiot. And you should have the ability to do that because the things you should learn from people that are doing it wrong is how not to do it, and you need that example as well. Mm. Rip Hill, give it up for Immortal Technique, man. Woo! Woo! Wow. I'm going to re-enroll in some college classes, I think. No, no. I think it's some shit that I missed. <laughs> give it up for one more time. We Thank ain't had that much knowledge dropped on the Rip Hill, brother. I just want uh, to repeat what I said earlier in the podcast that we want to both offer our condolences to... Uh, the young brother's family down there. And it's very sad that um, that there's not the opportunity that young people have to grow and change because, mm. you know, when I was in prison, I was a totally different person. 
and uh, me being young and ignorant and, and, and just a violent individual, I had to confront things about my past, about the things that I went through. And I remind people, there's always a way back, man. There's always a way back. Mm. Come back to us, man. We need you. We love you. You know, we don't want to see you in an in a alleyway with a needle in your arm. Get those fucking pills out your mouth. Take that fucking needle out your arm. We need you. We love you. We need you here with us. One more time, give it up for more techniques, you guys. Peace, we out. That was fucking fantastic, man. Jesus Christ.